Hello, my bobolas. It's so nice to be here with you all. Thank you to our new subscribers. Uh, reminder, if you're not a subscriber, this is a crowdfunded project. It depends on your support. So please go to liebressler.substack.com slash subscribe to sign up. It's not expensive. Thank you in advance. Uh, I just finished watching all five seasons of a French TV show called The Bureau or Le Bureau. Uh, it's one of my favorite TV shows I've seen in a long time. I really, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it's about the DGSE, which I'd never even heard of. That's like the French version of the CIA. And uh, I think it, it mixes some of the best elements of Homeland 24, The Americans, uh, John le Carré novels. You know, we've talked before here about how sometimes movies, they the characters veer into this very unrealistic kind of superhero type stuff. And I don't enjoy that. This I liked because it does not veer into that. It's, it's, it's got the same narrative intensity, but without being unrealistic. Like Jack Bauer was cool, but he was, he was a cartoon some of the time. It, it, you know, it just, it didn't have that, that same realism that this show had. And, and I, uh, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. Highly recommend. Uh, I rewatched all of the Mission Impossible movies with my kids uh, a couple weeks ago, which those, you know, those hold up really quite well. Uh, even the first one, it's 26 years old. I remember seeing it in the movie theater, which makes me feel pretty old. Um, but it, it, they hold up well. My kids love them. Uh, I'd say definitely the first one is still my favorite, but the third and the sixth are close behind. Fourth and fifth were really quite stupid, but, but three and six were, were really good. And, uh, while we're on the t subject of media, uh, I'm next going to read a book by a Polish author named Olga Tokarczuk. I'm sure I mispronounced that, but people are always asking me about book recommendations. We talk about books a lot here. Uh, I'm going to be reading a book called Flights. I've wanted to read it for a few years. I'm finally getting around to it. Her new book called The Books of Jacob is coming out in the US next month. Um, she won like a Nobel Prize in literature for flights. So I'm sure it's uh, going to be Good, and I'm looking forward to reading it. And uh, there's a new song on the radio by an artist named Gail. It's called A, B, C, D, E, F, U. And it is all about a breakup. Uh, I, I heard Elvis Duran interview her on the radio. And then my kids and I just became obsessed with this song. The language is like totally kid inappropriate, but we've been singing it nonstop for the past week and apologies for my uh, trying to sing the title of the song. I'm sure I butchered it, even though uh, I can't tell because I'm tone deaf. Um, other exciting news. Uh, Queen Elizabeth took all of Prince Andrew's special honors away from him as a punishment for screwing kids with Jeffrey Epstein. I don't, I don't know if this has real practical significance. She told him that he's going to have to pay his own legal bills to defend himself, which I can tell you from personal experience can run into the millions of dollars and is not a, uh, a fun one. But 
I'm not sure. I, look, I don't know what, what he's got in his bank account, but I don't think that's going to uh, move the needle too much. But I just this whole royal family is appalling. I mean, it's not like Prince Andrew was the only one that was fucking kids, right? We, 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 we just like, come on, these, this whole family has been up to no good for a long time. Like, like hundreds of years. But how about the one, uh, I don't know, what was it, in the 30s, the one who retired because he was a Nazi? Uh, just, this is a family that's up to no good. They're all drunks. Not, not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm a drunk. But they're all drunks. They're all deadbeats. Uh, and, and remember when Diana, remember she had a kid with the bodyguard? And then got divorced, and then they killed her because she was dating a Muslim. That was wild, and they were like, "Yeah, the the car crashed. Oopsies." I mean, that they they that was a a, a hit. So obviously, they put out a hit on her. Uh, I mean, that was. There's a lot of theories about that. That like maybe it was the Mossad or something. It was her family. They were pissed off at her. Uh, I, I was hoping that they would do the same to Prince Andrew because of the the stuff with the kids, but uh, so far they haven't had him whacked. He, he look, he's only in trouble because he got caught, and and now the 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 kid that Diana had with the bodyguard, that that disgusting ginger guy, he moved to California for his Netflix deal. Remember the in twenty twenty one, that was like the highlight of the year for me was when he went on Oprah and they acted like there was some big reveal that this whole family of of interdimensional shape-shifting lizards was racist. Like that was a surprise to anyone. Who who could be surprised by that? And of course, it's a sad week. RIP to Bob Saget. Very sad that he died young. He was an amazing comedian. Uh, that's how I always think of him. I don't, I wasn't a big fan of Full House. I don't think of him as the dad from Full House. He was so vulgar. He was so funny being vulgar and, uh, and just a, a great comic. What are the odds that Bob Saget died from getting the COVID booster? 25%, 50%? Anyways, now he's in heaven. He is uh, definitely having a threesome with Betty White. And Robert Durst, they're doing that thing where they're like all shaped in a triangle and just eating each other out for sure. I mentioned that one theme of the show this year is going to be qui bono, uh, which as a reminder means who benefits. And I, I really want to pick apart messaging and narratives that may seem innocuous, but where it feels like they are cover for a lobbying effort. And so I'd, I'd love suggestions from, uh, from listeners. Uh, you know, give me examples where you're curious and, and let's pick them apart together. I thought of a, a, a bunch, um, one that doesn't get a lot of airtime these days but I was thinking about this week is uh, it was very big in the early 2000s is the concept of social security privatization. You know, the basic idea is that your wages are taxed. You pay, I don't know what it is, like 2.9% uh, 
tax on your salary up to $140,000 a year or something. You pay like the first 2.9% of that uh, to contribute to social security. And then that money is used to pay out to current retirees. But of course, the, the fear that a lot of people have is that by the time my generation is old enough to retire, that system won't have any money available for us. Uh, and so wouldn't it be better to fix that? And one way to fix that, the idea is that everybody puts their money into a private account that they can invest however they choose. So instead of it all going into one giant slush fund that pays out, you have like your own dedicated social security account, just as you do with your IRA or with your 401k. And I, I like, I get that. I get why that is a, appealing, it gets rid of the burden on the government to manage this mismatch of money going in and out, right? Each individual has their retirement account. And uh, even if the amount that you pay into it is still a mandatory tax, you still have control over it. And you want to swing for the fences, put it into equities. You want something more conservative, put it into bonds or cash or whatever. I mean, just the same as you would with with a 401k, I guess. Um, and look for, for a very, very long time, the returns in the stock market have outpaced the rate of increase in social security payouts. So this in theory would have been good for a lot of people for a long time. Payouts from social security are indexed to wages. So they should perform in line with inflation or so. Uh, but by privatizing, you let people invest in the stock market. They can maybe save even more for retirement. Um, and, and, and in a sense, maybe the, the best part of it is that it creates this new huge pool of capital to invest in businesses and that can propel future economic growth. But of course, the downside is a few things. First of all, what happens in the immediate term? If everybody's money starts going into a retirement account, where is the money going to come from to pay out to the current retirees? Uh, who, who's going to fund all of that? So that's one big issue is that if you do it, you have this this huge gap that you need to to fill. And the second downside is what happens to the people who lose their money? Because if you put it in the stock market and something goes wrong, you have another 2008, I don't, you have nothing to retire on. Who's funding your retirement? Are you just going to have a lot of indigent elderly people or more indigent elderly people? And if you don't let people control the money themselves, I guess you take away the option for people to mess it up. You know, look at at the at the level of individual companies, this shift happened over the past 30 years. Like for a long time, most businesses had defined benefit retirement plans. So as a worker, you'd go work at at US Steel for 30 years. And then when you retired, you got a pension from the company and it was tied to the number of years that you worked there. And so I guess you were implicitly contributing to the plan because otherwise the company could have paid you a higher salary while you worked there. But look, it gave a lot of predictability to employees. They knew that they could retire with a certain amount of money and they could rely on that. 
Now, it turned out that most companies did a terrible job of investing these plans. They ended up with huge deficits. They owed more in retirement liabilities than they had in assets. Uh, and so most companies don't do those kinds of plans anymore. They moved people to IRAs and 401ks uh, where it, they're tax advantaged plans and you put your money into it and it's yours. You control it. And it's no longer the responsibility of your employer if you decide to just YOLO in GameStop calls and you blow up. It's also more portable, right? You can roll over your IRA when you go work for another company. Even the entire narrative, like the Reagan era, Thatcher era narrative about personal responsibility feels aligned with this. You know, it's, it's, you're in charge of your own retirement. You're, you're responsible for it. If you mess up, you don't get a do over because personal responsibility. It's like this sort of Ayn Randian notion that feels like it, it was hijacked to get a policy passed and to, to market something. But when it comes to social security, I think there's more to it than just being a sound policy. Here, here's the, the qui bono part of this. The asset management industry, Wall Street, makes money by charging fees on the assets they're investing. Let's call it somewhere between a tenth of a percent and one percent on average, probably close to about one percent on average. So the more money that they're managing, the larger a base on which to earn fees. So if you suddenly have an extra $3 trillion of investable assets, that would be pretty damn lucrative for the financial services industry. All of this extra money pouring into the stock market, by the way, would probably push up the value of stocks, which would increase the size of the pie even further. So my suspicion is that whether or not this is a good idea, whether or not it is a sensible policy, I think this was really a lobbying push by the financial services industry, because it would be a huge boon to have more investable assets. And, and even, you know, the counterpart to this, there are these health spending accounts that you get from your company where you can put money in to save for, you know, when you, when you eventually need surgery or diabetes or whatever, I don't know. And instead of fancy health insurance plans, here's a way to save money. Your company can put money into it that you can spend on healthcare. But this also creates a new pool of assets for the financial services industry. It's not something that was just blatantly bad, but you can guess that the lobbying from the financial services industry to do this was strong. You know, when I was in grad school, I took a class on business and public policy with a, uh, with a professor named Justin Wolfers. And Professor Wolfers is a famous economist. He's a Twitter person. And he said something, it was one of the only lines that I remember verbatim from a professor. He said, lobbying is education. And I think he was right. Like sales, lobbying, advocacy, they're all most effective when you focus on education. If you can teach someone why whatever you believe is a good idea, they're more likely to believe it too. That's the, the, the best way to be persuasive, I think. And so, you know, the, the answer to the question of qui bono here is it's the financial services industry and not in a small way. 
Now, look, this hasn't happened, but it's just interesting to think about these policy ideas. And I'd love more suggestions from you on on ideas that you want to uh, to pick apart over the course of the year. As long as we're discussing lobbying, I want to revisit a topic that we talked about a few months ago, which is teachers unions. I think that teachers unions are a danger to the entire fabric of this country. They are a grave threat to America. I see teachers unions as pushing to weaken public schools and they want to work the least amount possible. They want children to get a meager education. I think that the public school system in America is one of our greatest strengths as a country. Offering free, high-quality schooling is essential. It's, It's how we create a literate and educated workforce that can go on to create and innovate and be productive members of society. And, you know, you see plenty of like these fear pieces that that come out in the press every year about how America is falling behind in education and the Singaporeans and the Chinese and the, the, the Swedish or I don't know, they're all like better than us, supposedly. And maybe in some ways it's true. Um, I think a lot of that is just like the, the kids in Singapore did better on a math test. And again, maybe, sure. The kids in China are doing better on a math test. I'm not always sure that's the best yardstick. Uh, I think what we do as a country, it's a combination of the freedom, the freedom of thought, the freedom of, of expression. It creates creativity. It creates critical thinkers. And that's the most important thing that we teach. Not everyone picks up those skills. There are there are stupid kids. There are stupid adults. Like there's lots of stupids. But I think on average, we have a lot more creative thinkers and innovators than other countries have. And that's a big part of what propels our economy and our country forward. There's another benefit to public schools, which is that they just provide a place that is safe that is warm, where kids are fed, where they are, are, are safe from abusive parents, where they go for one or more decent meals a day. For a lot of kids, that's the safest and best part of their day. Uh, Freddie DeBoer wrote a great piece about this last week, and it's a really important point. It, his piece was called, Many Kids Don't Have a Warm, Safe healthy home in which to do remote learning. You know, it's easy to think that that distance learning, what we started doing during COVID, to think that it's fine because you know that when your kids are at home that they have, you know, a T1 internet connection, they have some current generation iPad Pro on which to do their remote learning. It's easy to, to only consider your situation, your personal situation, and not imagine that not everyone else has the same privileges that you do. There are lots of homeless children. There are poor kids who don't have those things, right? There are lots of kids that are using their Gen 1 iPad like a DJ at a hotel pool in Mexico. You know, in March of 2020, 
when COVID really began, uh, it was like three days before my kids were going to start spring break. And I anticipated the mayhem a little bit. I went shopping for groceries the week of March 4th. I stockpiled as much as I could. I filled the freezer with meat. I bought multiple 10-pound bags of rice. I bought lots of toilet paper while it was still available. And then in, in mid-March, my, my kids' school closed. They sent everyone home. They canceled classes for the next few days. There was this tension in the air. I mean, remember that feeling? It was wild. There, there, there are a few times where like the whole world has the same feeling. Or, or the whole city anyways. And I, I remember after 9-11, like there was a feeling in the city. During the financial crisis, there was a feeling in the city. And and COVID, it, it did that. It created this feeling, this, this scariness to everything. Everything was changing fast. It seemed like if you caught this, you were going to die. Like in that Gwyneth Paltrow movie, the one where she goes to Hong Kong and, and fucks the Asian guy and then gets the disease. I don't remember what it was called. But then... You know, it it was it got weird. It got tense. Shopping for groceries. Do you remember that? Shopping for groceries at that time? It was bizarre. The shelves were bare. I wore gloves. I wore a mask. I, I, everyone felt like a threat vector. Even I, I remember I sneezed once in the supermarket and people looked at me like I was a killer. And I think tons of people started doing Blue Apron. Remember people were doing Blue Apron for a minute? That was always a weird thing, Blue Apron. It was like Meals on Wheels, but for I don't know white people. What 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 is what is Blue Apron? It was a it was a strange thing. Anyways, after uh, after spring break that year, my kids' school announced that they would be switching to distance learning. Lots of schools announced that. Now look, my kids have a warm and safe home. Uh, their uncle got them Chromebooks to use for school. They're very fortunate. I know that. We spent a couple months on Long Island, kind of removed from the mayhem in New York City. And we did what a lot of people did. We we cooked, we watched Netflix, that awful show about the tiger guy. That was the stupidest thing. That was that and and the Michael Jordan show were not good. And people were like, oh, my God, you got to see it. It's so good. The tiger guy and the kill. It's just, oh, my God, who cares? But they did distance learning and it was fine. Their school had never done distance learning before. No one had any idea what to do. I remember the first day of distance learning, the school sent a list of links to websites of some magazines. It was like National Geographic for Kids and Newsweek for Kids. And they sent it to my daughter's third grade class. And they were like, pick an article from one of those websites, read it and write a paragraph about it. That was the entire assignment for the day. So not super rigorous to start off with. And these kids, remember, these kids had no idea how to use the internet in a meaningful way, right? Like my kids had done Netflix before, but they didn't know how to use the internet. It was all foreign to them. One one of the girls in my daughter's class, this was incredible. She, she was going to one of the websites that was assigned and there was an advertisement for one of those online personality tests for the Scientologists or some other wacky group. And she had no idea that it wasn't a legit thing. So she 
clicked on that. Like if you're if you're in third grade and you don't know how to use the internet, that seems reasonable. She spent an hour answering questions until her father came over and was like, what are you working on? And then realized what was happening and shut it down. But, you know, within a few weeks, my kid's school figured out how to do it right. I'm very willing to forgive those early missteps. It was new. It was scary. It was different. They'd never done Zoom school before. But once once it became clear later on that school shutdowns were not the right policy, my tolerance for shutdowns anywhere in this country diminished. Like, I'm grateful that my children's school has done an incredible job and that they've stayed open. You know, the kids wear masks. They have these silly plastic dividers between the desks. They get COVID tested at school every two weeks. But they've avoided most of the dumb, dumb stuff. And they've been open since just after the beginning of the school year in the fall of 2020. There is no evidence that closing schools was a useful public health intervention. There's no evidence that that was even a way to stop COVID from spreading. It was not useful for kids. COVID was not a risk to kids. Kids didn't even seem to be major spreaders of COVID. But yet, last week, the teachers union in Chicago shut down the schools. They sent 300,000 children home so that they could avoid a virus that did not pose a threat to kids. Omicron doesn't even seem to pose a risk to adults. Even if you even if you start with the premise that that COVID vaccines are not relevant in fighting Omicron because it's a different thing, it still doesn't pose a risk to adults. For the school to close it, it is a policy that has no moral justification. You know, uh, 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 there was a piece in the New York Times with the subject it said. For the past two years, Americans have accepted more harm to children in exchange for less harm to adults. That's what we did. We've harmed children to protect adults, but I don't even think it did anything to protect the adults. Closing the schools is terrible for kids. They're losing out academically. Math and reading performance, they've declined a lot. And the effect is worst for Black and Hispanic students. These teachers unions... That, that align themselves with all sorts of racial justice movements. It's bullshit. Where's the racial justice in harming black and Hispanic kids so that the teachers can work from home? Where is the fucking equity in that? And by the way, the teachers are, are, are barely even working from home. I spoke with multiple public school teachers and my, my clear takeaway, I, I heard it over and over, was that the teachers are working for like one to two hours a day when they're doing Zoom school. They are very checked out. And part of the reason is that the teachers aren't allowed to do anything. In most districts, they're not allowed to do anything that might advantage one child over another. So, for example, they can't assign worksheets unless they know that every child can print them. And so instead, the kids just sit there on Zoom with their faces visible playing video games. These kids are getting stupid or, or, or they're not getting smarter there's no justification for it. We can't justify it as a reasonable way to protect adults. It can't be justified because the science isn't there, because the ethical trade-offs are not in balance. In Chicago, where they shut down the schools, the vast majority of teachers are vaccinated. Mike Solana 
wrote a piece last week and he said, it's just another capitulation to the 1% most neurotic men and women in the country, many of whom simply don't want to return to the world before COVID. I don't even think that's the right assessment. I think it's a capitulation to a major voting block and to an electoral power that just doesn't want to go to work. They want to be paid the same amount without having to do anything. I wrote in November, the teachers unions advocated for closures because they didn't want to commute to work. They didn't want to have to teach. They wanted the most amount of perks in exchange for the least amount of work. But it is the job of our elected officials to be on the other side of that negotiation, to put their foot down, to say no, to tell the unions that they are not being reasonable, that they must come to work. Children need school. How come our elected officials refused to do that job? Teachers unions cannot be tasked with creating educational policy. That's not their job. That's the job of our elected politicians. The unions have an agenda. They cannot be trusted with this responsibility. And for our politicians, if you can't legally force the teachers, then you need to do a better job of your messaging and your marketing to embarrass the hell out of them. As we think about the measures that the unions are imposing on children with their walkouts, let's remember they're not doing this because it's good for students. They're not even doing it because it somehow protects the health of the teachers. They're doing it because they want to work the least number of hours in exchange for the most amount of pay. This weekend, I am heading to Cooperstown, New York. I'm taking my son to the Baseball Hall of Fame. I went there once when I was in sleepaway camp. Uh, I'm excited to do it again. We're, we're big baseball fans. It's going to be insanely cold. I looked with the wind chill. It's going to be negative 29 tomorrow night. It's supposed to snow a foot, so it's going to be intense. But look, we're going to be inside most of the time. Uh, if you're listening and you've got um, you've got recommendations about things to do in or near Cooperstown or on the way to Cooperstown, let me know. Uh, on the way, we're, we're planning to stop at this big baseball card convention. Um, baseball cards are going through a real moment now. The market is booming. It's not the ones I collected as a kid. Like I had tons of baseball cards as a kid in the late 80s and early 90s, but it seems like the those companies massively overproduced the cards then. The the hot ones are the the old ones and the very rare new ones, the the ones with this sort of artificial scarcity imposed on them now. Um I you know these these cards are like the predecessor to NFTs, right? They have no intrinsic value. Their value is cuz we just imagine that they have value. It, it's because of scarcity. Uh, my son is getting into baseball cards now. So uh, I love doing hobbies with him. I love doing hobbies with my father. I, I'm encouraging this. I'm going to give him 10 bucks at the baseball card show. Let him allocate it as he sees fit. It's a good budgeting lesson for him, I think. Uh, my, my only concern with the baseball card show is the crowd there. Because I think it's sort of the, the same as the Guitar Center crowd that we talked about. Uh, last week, which is kind of the same as the crowd that does Civil War reenactments, maybe. That's a weird hobby, right? We should we should get someone on who does Civil War reenactments.
Anyways, uh, thank you for joining me today. Remember, I write, I record to share a unique and independent point of view that you will not find elsewhere in the media. And I depend on your support to do it. So please sign up as a paid subscriber. If you enjoyed this, share, uh, share it with your friends, with your colleagues. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram and Getter and whatever. And, and, and look me up uh, and I'll be back with more soon.